The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. We were talking uh, before the break about the things that maybe you've done nice for somebody recently as we turn this into a feel-good Friday because I feel that we all could use it, some of us more than others, uh, today. And the texts are still coming in. Uh, Rod says, Jay, I was out for New Year's dinner with my family, my wife, my kids, my brothers. A server came over and said another customer paid our bill. Couldn't even say thank you. They simply left for an entire New Year's Eve dinner, which is really, really nice. And check out this one. A uh, hockey acquaintance dad I met a few years ago, he offered my dad a kidney and he was totally serious. He said everything, um, you know, was set up with the doctors, but only to find out that the doctors declined because my dad uh, was too old. But how awesome is that? Some guy just offering up his, his kidney. That's awesome. And you know what else is awesome? The super awesome science show. The podcast right here, the man behind it, it's an award-winning podcast, just uh, so you know, is Jason the Germ Guy Tetro. Hi, Jason. Well, hello there. Thanks for coming in. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be joining you. You know what? Um, last time we had you in, uh, people were asking questions left, right, and center, and I'm like, okay, we need to do this on, on more of a regular base, well, on a regular basis. And every time we get talking, you'll come over, we'll hang out at my desk, I start asking you all sorts of questions, yeah. and you can explain it, you have an answer for it. One of the ones, and it came up again last night, mm-hmm. and it was we got talking about coffee. Oh, we got yeah. talking about coffee, and I had mentioned that uh, recently I just decided no more sugar. No more sugar in my coffee. Mm-hmm. It was just a decision, boom, started within two days. It was fine. Other people have a real struggle with it. Now if I put any sugar in my coffee at all, it's like, ah, it's mm-hmm. like sucking on a sugar cube. How is it that that changes so quickly? Believe it or not, uh, you probably don't know this, but there was actually a study that just came out, like literally yesterday, where we are starting to understand what's going on. There are uh, receptors on our taste buds, right? And those receptors kind of are the same way as we are with um, drugs. Okay, okay. (laughs) So you can become addicted, but then you also become sort of numb or tolerant. So as you're having sugar, these particular taste bud receptors are becoming more and more tolerant of sugar. So you're going to need more and more and Mm. more. Now, I have to say, this was done in flies, (laughs) every flies, (laughs) but we kind of have the same proteins. So in that context, what we're saying is it sounds like we become more and more tolerant. Therefore, we need things to be sweeter and sweeter. Here's what gets interesting. It doesn't take very long to be without it before those receptors lose their tolerance because they're just not being used anymore. You know that whole idea of, you know, use it or lose it? it? Yeah. Yeah, Well, that's what it comes down to. So if you all of a sudden are cutting sugar out, it's not going to be very long before the next time you have sugar. It's going to seem incredibly sweet, especially if it's what you used to use on a regular basis. It would seem, given that, that it would be easy to lose weight then. (laughs) You know, it, it would seem that, you know, those things that we crave, the things that we want, those habits that we get into would be much easier to break than they are well see that's where the addiction part comes in okay right you kind of have to force yourself to actually stop having the sugar and willpower it can only take you so far because you are going to have those cravings now if we want to get into the neuroscience what you also have to realize is that 
sugar is addictive. Yes. So in the brain, you actually set off the reward centers, and as a result of that, you want more. Uh, it, it's a weird thing. So in the brain, when you want more, it's because the receptors that are used to having um, that particular molecule around start getting produced more and more, and that leads to cravings. So if you don't have that molecule circulating in your brain as a result of having sugar, you're going to want to have something that's going to lead to you having more sugar. Here's where it gets really cool. <laughs> it's not just you. But believe it or not, we actually have seen research that suggests that even the bugs, the microbes that are in your gut may be doing this as well. Really? Sending messages to your brain that I want sugar. So when you think about trying to lose weight, first off, you got to have that willpower. Mm -hmm. Then you have to fight your brain and then you have to fight the bugs in order for you to basically get rid of sugar so that you can start losing weight. Now, some people are sugar fiends. I'm, I'm not a sugar fiend, and I think that was part of the reason why I was. it was easy for me to, to give up sugar. Right. I'm a salt person. Yes. I like salt. I would rather have, you know, sea salt uh, chips um, over a chocolate bar. Mm -hmm. is, salt, is salt and sugar the same sort of thing, the way it works in the brain? No, because salt is really more about the type of salt that you use. Um, we have the sodium salt, which is, of course, a bit of a problem because of too much sodium in, mm -hmm. the, in the diet. But you can also have other types of uh, salts, essentially. Uh, the, 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 the chlorine or the chloride that comes with a salt, because it's NaCl, so yeah. sodium chloride. Well, it's that that's giving you that teeniness that's reacting essentially with your taste buds. So if you're having something that has that, that tanginess to it, that, that savory, mm -hmm. it means that you might be able to have uh, continued interest in having something that's salty without necessarily having to go with sodium. Now, the question is, can you incorporate that into your diet? That's a bit of a difficult thing because sodium is pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. So while it isn't exactly the same in the terms of the addiction that you would have with sugar, it's difficult because it's hard to get away from sodium, period, if, especially if you like savory or salty foods. So uh, someone texted in to, to me earlier talking about um, how he just shared his story of um, getting his sobriety, um, you know, becoming sober and uh, mm -hmm. won an award to, for something last night. Really great. And, you know, I know that's a real struggle for a lot of people. So we started this off with sugar and salt and we did not play on this again whatsoever. We started this with sugar and salt, and now I'm just wondering about, you know, alcohol and drugs as well when it looks to that. Oh. Sorry, so I'm, I know, it, is that, that's a whole, yeah. that's even alcohol, deeper. Alcohol, drugs, sugar, pretty much on the same level when it comes to addictive problems. Really? Because what happens is when you're talking about alcohol, um, it's a different kind of receptor, but it does the same thing. So if you are not producing a, enough of a particular chemical in your brain, those receptors come up. And the only way to get that chemical in your brain is, according to you, by drinking more alcohol. Mm -hmm. Now, there are other ways that you can do it. So when you talk about exercise programs, meditation, mindfulness, those types of things, they also help to produce that particular molecule, which can help in terms of the addiction process. The issue is whether or not you're going to take the time and the effort to be able to do those procedures as opposed to just having a drink. Mm. Because quite honestly, it's just much easier having a drink. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. So in that context, yeah. When it comes to drugs, the problem that happens in this particular case is that it's not just necessarily a receptor, but it's also the electricity that goes through your brain. 
the synapses that allow for electrical impulses to ha uh, occur, they get changed when you're on drugs because those drugs are mimicking or manipulating the way that your brain reacts. And when that happens, not only is it an addiction, it's actually a change. And there's something called plasticity in the brain, which means that you're, you're rewiring the way that your brain mm -hmm. works. And if you stay on particular drugs for a long period of time, you literally rewire your brain so that it becomes used to having it. And then you have that tolerance, and so you need more and more and more. It's, it's a rather dark s spiral. Yeah, you know, I remember um, when I was at Global Television and I, I was doing some feature reporting and I had done a series on, on crystal meth when it first kind of came on the mm -hmm. scene here in, in Alberta and some of the challenges that uh, they were having then and that we're still having. And I, I was talking to um, the RCMP fella who was in charge of, of the unit and he was explaining to me about the drug and about the impact that it has on your brain he says he, he says think of the best orgasm that you've ever had in your life mm times it by about a thousand and that's kind of like that first hit and you can never get that back you're constantly changing the dopamine drop is that what yeah, it was yeah. it's the dopamine it's drop, the dope drop. Yep. and that you can never get back there so you end up wanting more taking more always chasing so it's like chasing your tail that you and you can never catch it again mm -hmm. is yeah. that yeah it's adrenaline junking Basically. Yeah. Now, when we talk about adrenaline junkies, we're talking about someone who is, you know, getting that dopamine rush from doing something that's risky, right? Um, other people are going to get that that rush through doing something where, you know, they may get caught. Or uh, there's this old little joke, you know, have you ever stolen something? Have you ever shoplifted? Yeah, yeah you're going to get last, this yeah. rush when you steal that bubble gum. And not so much. Crystal meth, on the other hand, it's a drug that is designed specifically to give you that yeah. high. But the problem is, is, as you said, once you get that first high, then you immediately start to develop tolerance and you'll never, ever get back to that again. We see the same thing a little bit with cocaine, yeah. uh, some extent with, with the heroines, those types of things. Stay away from it if you can. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a good idea. Um, wanted to ask you, we, you we, we were talking about cravings earlier and not, so let's move away from, you know, drugs and, you know, that sort of stuff. But going back to the sugar, the sweet, the salt, cravings in general, yep. is there a scientific way to to handle <laughs> cravings, a way to break it down, or you just have to fight through it? Is there some way that we can think about it that can get us through it? <laughs> Everyone always told me, like when I was bodybuilding and it's like, you're craving something, just drink some water, you're probably hungry. Yeah, and I think in that context, when we start having cravings, we have to decide what that craving happens to be. If it's a craving for a particular type of food, then yeah, you're going to be hungry. If it's a, a craving for that dopamine rush, it's not yeah. going to be hunger. It's going to be something else that you're looking forward to. So what you want to do is you want to try and figure out what that craving is for. And that's partly where that, that meditation, that mindfulness comes in because you, you essentially take out the whole world around you and you just focus on what it is that you are craving. And when you do that, it gives you a better understanding of how your brain is working and also how you might be able to work along with it to, to get to a, you know, a better place. But, what I do want to say, though, is that can we find substitutes? Possibly. Are they ever going to be exactly what we want? Probably not. And I think the best case scenario for this is nicotine. Um, we know that there is a plant out there called Lobelia, which can help you, right? But it doesn't actually do a full mimic. It's just kind of there. 
So if you don't have the willpower and you don't have the mindfulness to be able to deal with those cravings, then there's a good likelihood that this lobelia isn't going to give you what you want. Methadone for, mm -hmm. uh, for heroin mm -hmm. as well. So while we have substitutes, they're not exact. And so, yeah, you, you, you're going to have to... Mm. Hmm, interesting stuff. All right, uh, Jason Tetro, Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, joining us as the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. You can check that podcast out, the award-winning Super Awesome Science Show. I'm going to keep saying that. Uh, let's talk about moms. Let's talk about moms when we come back. Yeah. Kelsey's uh, playlist this afternoon. I think this is a Kelsey's uh, road trip playlist. Uh, uh, Jason Tetra joining me in studio this afternoon. It's going to stick around for a while because um, whenever we get talking, people start sending questions in and then we just kind of go off, or I do, on tangents asking all sorts of questions. Your um, podcast this week on the Super Awesome Science Show is talking about moms mm -hmm. and, the, and the science of moms. What, just trying to figure out... I don't understand what the science of moms is all about. Oh my goodness, there's so much that one needs to really think about when it comes to mom. Now, we do hit a few serious topics, but there is one particular trait to all moms. And, and I've done the research, I, I have done the statistical <laughs> results. The P level is there. They all use one particular strategy in Ooh. order to make sure that they reign supreme over their kids. It is called the guilt trip. Oh yeah. And believe it or not, there's a researcher who researches how guilt trips work, and we managed to get a hold of her, uh, Wendy Rote, at the uh, University of South Florida in St. Petersburg, and we talk about the guilt trip and why it's effective and how it can be too effective. So how does it work? So what you're trying to do is you're trying to point out to the person that you're guilting that what they have done is going to be harming others. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad person. What it means is that you've made an inappropriate decision to make an action. That's what a guilt trip is for. However, sometimes what ends up happening is that you end up making it about the person. And they all of a sudden feel like they're a bad person. Mm. And that leads to shame. So there's this fine balance between guilting somebody into realizing that they've made an error and that they should remedy it, right? You never call your mother. <laughs> or you may end up saying you're a bad person because you never call your mother and then put that person into shame. So it's really interesting because it gives mothers a perspective as to how they can use the guilt trip effectively without taking it to a level that is going to be bad for the child mm. and, and eventually for the relationship. Is there um, is there something special when it comes to to, to moms? I've always I, I've always joked about the, you know the smell of newborn babies and you know how good uh, they smell. I don't know whether it's you know combination of breast milk and the the, <laughs> the the whatever they're washing the kids with or whatever it is. Um, someone always joked with me is that's to make sure that they don't kill the children. <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's one of the things, right? It's just one of those one of those things what is it about that 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 connect with with mom and, and, and kids so when it comes to that baby smell mm -hmm. um, it's still sort of 
what's coming off of the baby after uh, the birth. There's a number of different hormones and chemicals that are involved, and it seeps into the skin, and so mm. that's that smell that you get. Uh, it really does link up a mother to her baby. But what a lot of people don't realize is that within a couple of days even, a newborn can recognize its own mother. <laughs> so in that context, there's going to be that relationship that's, that's there. Then you have the idea that a baby needs and a baby will then ask for caring and the mother will be there to provide that caring, which is going to solidify that bond even further. And so that's essentially how it's going. But what I find so interesting is that there's this hardwired neurological condition where the mother and the baby really do know one another. And I think that's where it really becomes an issue of making sure that the mother and the baby constantly have that connection to to maintain that bond. And if you all of a sudden separate, mm. okay, then that baby is going to be looking for connection somewhere else. And sometimes that can happen. It just won't be the same. Hmm. And what I find most interesting about the bond is that as a baby becomes more and more able to recognize that bond, they then have the ability to manipulate it. <laughs> now, I know most of you are probably going to hate me for saying this, but remember a few months ago, yeah. Justin Trudeau was talking with Bill Nye and he talked about babies yeah. being scientists and they mm. test it. Oh, that's true. Babies literally do whine and complain in the hopes of being able to identify who its bond mother is. Oh, okay. All right? Because... See who I, responds. Yeah, I exactly. So the fact of the matter is, is that this is really scientific testing for a baby to find out who to maintain those bonds with. I thought that those bonds would be there before like that they they are they are being made in utero with hearing voices and being able to we hear music and voices is that yeah there is there is some of that yeah. and so there is that that sort of what we call you know postnatal memory that is occurring but as the baby is developing and creating more of these neurons and more of these linkages and and developing sort of their own person as it were then what's going to end up happening is that a lot of what was remembered sort of in mm -hmm. utero and stuff is probably going to get replaced with new memories and so that's where that bonding really takes place. And, um, I, you know, in, in my book, The Germ Files, it's interesting because I talk about child care from the perspective of the microbes. And one of the things that people have to understand is that those first six months in life really are important. But when you talk to a neurologist or someone who's in neuroscience, they say the exact same thing. Those first six months are there for the bonding and, and for appreciating. And then after six months, that's when the baby starts to really figure things out for um, for itself and that mm. and and then you have to maintain 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 now can a baby become addicted to the mom eh, probably can a mom become addicted to the baby if she's not what's wrong with her <laughs> i'm just joking please moms do not text me <laughs> but really i think in that context when we have that that bonding that's going on we want to make sure that we're maintaining it throughout and then Usually what happens is that there's another critical period where the child becomes a teenager and then you have that next development that's going on in the brain. And if the bonds are not maintained, then you can start to have those schisms again. And, uh, you know, how many moms who have teenage daughters know this? Oh, my gosh. I, I'm picturing a day back when I was 13 years old that I swear to God my mother was ready to kick me out of the house because I was such a 
a nasty young lady, let me tell you. Only 13. <laughs> yeah, it was, well, it was, yeah, it was 13-ish, I think, or 15-ish. Anyway, Jason, the germ guy, Tetro, joining me in studio this afternoon, of course. He's a microbiologist, author of The Germ Files, and host of the super awesome science show. We'll take a break here for the 3.30 News. On the other side, we're going to talk about spring fever. What is it? Is it real? And I think that leads into the topic about love and breaking that down. We'll get to that next half hour. For Jason, Texas is 6.30, A number of, you know, we were talking about moms, right? Yeah. I'm 46-year-old, 200 pounds, and I'm still afraid of my mom, says Trevor. And uh, Elaine in North Edmonton says, family joke, pack your bags, we're going on a guilt trip. Yeah, so a little flashback <laughs> to that one. I think I might steal that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jason, the germ guy, Tetro, joining us in studio. So spring is here, and I, it's, I don't know, Jason, if it's a... Coming out of that depth of darkness from being in the cold for so long, but then as soon as it's like five or seven degrees, we all have our our sunroofs open. We've you know thrown on the shorts and the flip flops, and you know we're we're we just get this mm, ball of something in our bellies, like we got to go do something. And you talk about spring fever, and you talk mm-hmm. about people having spring pe- fever, and you talk about animals having spring fever, is. It, 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 there's science behind it, obviously. Yeah, and uh, it's probably the easiest science of all. Really? <laughs> the days are longer. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, More light. sunlight? Yeah. Uh, and, and the way we know this is uh, by research that actually shows how you can um, invoke spring fever artificially. Oh. They, they had a group in Antarctica, and they did some research with them. And what they did is they mimicked sunlight over the course of springtime. And they got people to have spring fever. It's just rather amusing because this stems not from our analysis of spring, but our analysis of winter. Because you've heard of uh, uh, seasonal affective disorder, SAD, right? Well, the whole idea was to use light to be able to help people to, to feel better. And that works. So is that part and parcel due to the fact that we just want to have more sunlight in order for us to feel better? And sure enough, it is. But why does the sunlight make us feel better? Well, that's where it gets really interesting. Because it has to be a certain kind of light. Yes. So if you are being subjected to blue light, blue sunlight, then you're going to be more up, more awake. But then as the sunlight starts to get redder, you end up becoming more restless. Because part of your body wants to go to bed. Another part of your body is saying it's still light. And then there's the uh, sort of a, a battle between the two as to what you're going to do. Now, for a lot of people, that ends up becoming what we had talked about earlier, which is to find those addictions. Yeah. So more people are going to exercise. More people are going to try and find ways to be able to, to get that extra pent-up energy out so that they can go to bed. However, if you start looking at say, adolescents and university students, they tend to drink more. Mm. And when you start looking at people who take riskier behaviors, as we have those longer times in the evening where it's red light, 
then they're going to take riskier uh, tricks and, and, and stuff like that. So it, it becomes very interesting that that red light that happens in spring can actually have a negative effect on us. So explain a little bit more again the difference between blue light and red light because, you know, you talk about blue, blue light coming from the sun. Is it Does it get to a redder color depending on the time of day? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So it starts up and we don't really have red in the morning. We have mm-hmm. sort of a yellow pinkish and yeah. then that goes up. But when you, if you've ever watched the sunset, especially around this time at night, uh, about after 7.30, mm-hmm. it starts to get red. And, and it's yeah. not pink anymore. It's this reddish color, almost like a reddish yellow. Yeah. And that's the trigger. Because what's going on in our eyes is that there are sort of cells called retinal ganglion cells, RGCs, you know, cones, rods, and yeah. RGCs. Okay. Right? So they are very sensitive to the type of light that we have. So blue light is going to have one effect. Um hmm. The, the reddish yellow light is going to have another. And once we start getting into that, that's when you start to see this problem with um, our ability to deal with it. Spring fever um, can, you know, often mean, you know, maybe looking for love, getting a little, you know, as I said earlier, like a itch in your pants to go find something. <laughs> and I think with with animals, that's just, it's, that it's, it's just instinct. Um, can the same be said for humans? Well, it's fascinating because when you actually look at the research itself, there's no quote-unquote seasonality. Mm. So people are not seeking out more people uh, when it's spring. However, what does happen is people start to (laughs) seek out colleagues, friends, and others to make up for that time at night when you haven't figured out what to do. So when you're with your friends, you're more likely to be able to withstand that pressure that's coming from wanting to sleep and you're going to stay out and of course with friends you're going to have more chances of having relationships and so that's really where it's coming from so it's not so much about mating if you will Mm -hmm. as opposed to just being around friends so that you no longer have to worry about that Hmm. restlessness that's coming about if you don't have those people around you though if you are not with colleagues and and with mates it ends up actually leading to anxiety and depression. So while we might think about love, believe it or not, the most significant statistic that we see when it comes to spring is a rise in suicides. Why? Because that restlessness gets people all anxious and they start to lose their ability to have control. And there's two phases. So the first phase already happened, which was at the end of March, early beginning uh, of April. And you probably heard in the news, there was lots of people committing suicide. Uh. We're now entering the second stage, and you're starting to see now more of these people taking their lives. I think over the last 24 hours, I've seen three or four news reports. Wow. So in reality, while we might think that, you know, people are getting randy and excited, Mm -hmm. the reality is, is they're just getting restless. And if they don't have an ability to deal with that restlessness, it could have significantly negative outcomes. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I was just looking at spring fever and having fun. <laughs> I know, and that's the thing. It's <laughs> turned around really quickly. When we quickly. talk about spring fever, everyone thinks of it as being this really cool thing. Yeah. But when you actually look at it, it can be a malaise. It can be a problem. And I think most people, especially if you listen to the show, 
we talk with someone who helps you to understand how to deal with that anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it's incredible what he he suggests. It's literally to go out and be with people. Just be around people? Be around people. And if you can't do that, then again, you've got to start figuring out how to use that mindfulness, how to use that meditation or something to be able to deal with it. But it's so much harder. It, mindfulness and meditation is is something that takes a lot of practice, though. I mean, that is not exactly. something that comes overnight. You're not just going to say, okay, I'm going to go downstairs, and instead I'm going to go downstairs and meditate for an hour because you'll be lucky if your first time, if you can get through 30 seconds without yeah. thinking squirrel, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. that's what it is. I can remember trying to learn how to do that, and I was lucky. I think the most I ever got up to was maybe about three or four minutes mm-hmm. um, and just and, and really having to refocus all the time. I'm do, do some more guided meditation now yeah so having that voice in my head kind of guiding me through it all and that seems to work but it's not easy to do no uh, as I like to jokingly say I can plank longer than I can meditate <laughs> <laughs> and no I'm not at share level planking yet so don't even ask people but the reality is that yes it, you can't just download an app and and all of a sudden you're gonna be a Zen master yeah uh, it's going to take time and it's gonna take commitment Again, you know, back we hear a lot more about meditation and and mindfulness now. Um, And I'm not sure people understand how that works and and what it does to the brain. So what's happening is when you feel anxious, when you feel upset, when you feel sad, when you feel alone, all of these sort of conditions that are emotional, there is some kind of imbalance that's going on in your brain in terms of neurochemicals. That explains it. Okay. And based on the ones that are dominating who you are, they can really set you off one direction or another. So what you want to do is you want to try and find a way to balance them out. Now, the only way to balance them out is to give it time with no interaction, with no stimulus. Mm. And that's really where the meditation, the mindfulness is coming in. You're essentially putting out all of the outside influences to allow yourself to balance those neurochemicals. That's fascinating because you know what? Uh, recently, um, Bo Breeze is my uh, three-year-old Brittany Spaniel, and he mm-hmm. uh, was a bit of a arse and uh, kind of ruining you know just ruling the house and just and he was a a very highly he was a highly reactive dog yes highly reactive dog so if someone went by or something and so we put him in a in a three four week board and train and when we brought him home he was a completely different dog but one of the things that our our dog trainer said is that when we brought him at home if we couldn't keep him in a crate and he hated being in a crate Mm -hmm. um, to make sure that for at least probably six to eight weeks that the things that triggered him were not there so we had to remove uh, the things that that caused him to do that so for example in the house in the in the living room the big front window he's not allowed in there to hang over the back of the couch and be reactive all the time because he was always in this high state yeah. of re, uh, of reacting um, even at the back in at the back of the house if there's deer walking through the back so we had to change the blinds all along just to keep him in that state for as long as we could and I thought to myself oh come on but now that well, you're saying that it completely makes sense with what made sense with the dog yep it's rehab that that's what it comes down to it's rehab uh as much as i hate to say it and believe it or not we even started the 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 year on the show with instead of new year's resolution it was new year's rehab yeah so if you go to our january 1st show you'll actually hear about it 
everything that comes down to finding that balance is really all about rehabilitation. Yeah. And, it, and then you take it one step further, which is about finding that balance of the neurochemicals in your brain. <laughs> and it's really strange because you can talk about philosophy, you can talk about psychology, you can talk about neuroscience, heck, you can even talk about microbes. The idea is that if you can find a way to develop balance, then it's definitely going to improve your ability to succeed, not just as a human being, but also as a part of this planet. We'll wrap it up with Jason Tetro right after this. Jason Tetro in studio this afternoon. Hello. Author of The Germ Files and host of the super awesome science show, the mm. award-winning podcast. He's busy. That's why you're in here because you're you're recording another. Uh, well, episode. yeah, I'm I'm recording a few more uh, episodes, and uh, you know, I, I do want to give a bit, little bit of a shout out here. Um, you, the the person who currently is working in the back, Kelsey Campbell. Kelsey Campbell, yeah. She has not only been my mentor over the last <laughs> year and a half. She's also our fantastic editor. So if you hear the show, and I want you to hear the show, and I sound good, which I know I do. <laughs> You gotta thank Kelsey. <laughs> so everybody text message over to Kelsey that she's amazing, she's yeah. awesome. She's ignoring you right now, oh, just so she? you know, she's shaking her head. She's oh, looking okay. at her phone, yeah, she's like, stop yeah, it, stop it, stop it, stop <laughs> it. Let's, let's, let's change the subject then. Um, this week, um, when uh, the Edmonton Oilers uh, announced the new general manager, there was, yeah. there was a, a lot of um, surprised people um, and a lot of talk about um, a noticeable difference yeah. in, in, um, in uh, Daryl Cates. Yeah. Um, and, and it came out and the Oilers confirmed that he'd been battling um, an antibiotic-resistant uh, sinus infection. Yeah. And so for those folks, I mean, antibiotic-resistant uh, bugs, I mean, this is a huge, huge issue in the world right now. Yeah, it's it's become a, a lot more troublesome over the last, I'd say, five or six years. The, the, the World Health Organization called it a crisis in 2014. What is really a problem right now is the fact that when we first saw antibiotic resistance the the idea was well we'll just treat with another antibiotic but now what we're seeing is what we call multiple drug resistance and in some cases pan drug resistance in other words no antibiotics mm. so when it comes to someone like mr cates the problem is that he's probably been trying different antibiotics, but it hasn't been working. And as a result of that, what's happening is that he's losing his own muscular cells, mm. uh, you know, cartilage, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result of that, he has to go through surgeries. And that, that partially explains why he's like that. But what's worse is that if the bugs manage to get past the sinuses and get into the bloodstream, then you've got an infection in your blood and then you need IV antibiotics literally all the time. Yeah. So what you saw with Mr. Cates is just touching the surface of the hell that he's been going through. I hope, hope, hope that they're going to be able to find something, whether it's an antibiotic yep. or whether it's something else, such as using viruses, what we call phage therapy. I, I just hope that there's a way that they're going to be able to find a, a way to help him along. Yeah, there's uh, there's been a, just a lot of talk about this. I remember I think it's uh, and it's not this is not uh, having to do with uh, Mr. with with Daryl Cates, but I a family friend ended up with MRSA yeah. in his body, and that was just hell. Like was in a hospital for a very 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 long time, yeah. and that's just as you said when it gets into the bloodstream that sort of stuff. It's it seems to be almost impossible to get rid. 
of. Yeah. When you're dealing with something like an MRSA, you still have a chance. There's another one called vancomycin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, VRSA. Once you've got that, it's it's really difficult. Mm. So in this particular case, it's better not to think about what he has, but more or less just to think about the condition and, and the struggle he's going so through. So is there anything that we should think, just to end uh, off on this, if, if if we end up having to go into the hospital, if we're, we're in the hospital, we're, we're being prescribed something, is there something that we should keep in mind about using antibiotics, that sort of stuff? Yeah, first off, most of the time you're not going to need an antibiotic. So if you have a cold or a fever or something along those lines, you probably don't need an antibiotic. We have very rapid testing to determine whether you need an antibiotic. So that's the first thing. Secondly, if you are on an antibiotic, make sure that you do go through the whole thing. I know that there's a huge controversy right now whether or not you should go to the very end. Mm -hmm. At the moment, just go to the very end. It's probably going to be good for you regardless. And finally, just understand we're doing everything that we possibly can in the science world to try and figure out how we can battle these. But at the end of the day, they mutate, they evolve about 500,000 times faster than humans do. Wow. So we're in a race against time, and they're Usain Bolt. And basically, <laughs> we're that wimpy kid that, you know, you always cheer for at the end, but always ends up finishing well, last. Well, you're the microbiologist. You should be maybe doing less talking and more lab work. I love my pipettes. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Jason, thank you for this. I appreciate it so much. Um, it's so much fun to be with you. Let's do it again soon. All right, Jason Tetro, the science, uh, the germ guy. Jason, the germ guy. Your name is Nye, not mine. I know, right? I'm the science guy. That's right. Uh, author of the Germ Files, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Stick around the 4 o'clock news up next.